Welcome to the Magician and the Fool podcast. This is episode number 20. And today we were fortunate to be able to speak with Mr. Aaron Cheek. Dr. Cheek is a scholar of comparative religion, philosophy, and esotericism. He received his PhD in 2011 for his work on the history of alchemy, focusing on the life and work of French hermetic philosopher René Schwaller de Lubitz. Former president of the International Jean Gebser Society, his research also explores the poetic and experiential roots of Gebser's phenomenology of consciousness. For the past five years, he has been the director of Rabido Press, where he translates, writes, and publishes on the intersections between hermetic and integral philosophy. The conversation with Aaron was really insightful, and uh, we're big fans of his work. Before we jump into the episode, we would like to just say thank you to our patrons as usual. We also want to say thank you to everyone that's given us positive reviews on iTunes and other places. That really seems to help bump us up the charts, and that helps our guests get a bigger audience. As always, we dedicate this episode to Hermes, and we offer freely the merits we have accumulated doing this work to all beings for our mutual benefit. Okay, we are here with Mr. Aaron Cheek. Aaron's been on our list of people to talk to maybe since the beginning. And so we're, we're glad it's finally come together. Thank you for coming on, Mr. Cheek. Thank you for inviting me. It's, it's great to be here. Yeah, and we are here with Janice as well. Janice, hello, how are you? I'm very well, thank you. And thank you for coming on, Aaron. We're excited to talk to you. Yeah, no, I think we're going to have a good discussion. All right, so Aaron, you are a very multifaceted individual, so we could take this talk in so many directions, but um, I'd like to start with maybe the influence of Gebser. Um, you were the president of the Jean Gebser uh, International Society, and you reference him often, um, so I assume his outlook in part colors how you look at certain topics. So uh, maybe let's start there. Okay, yeah, Gebser is, is definitely a figure I've spent a lot of time with. Uh, and I guess it's, I guess my starting point with Gebser was when I was first formulating my, my PhD topic, I was introduced to Gebser uh, not long before that. A friend of mine literally handed me a copy of the, Ever, of the ever-present origin and said, he said, Jung was great, but Gebser saw over the hill. <laughs> and um, <clears throat> so I had this huge opus of Gebser's and I think I was finishing my honors thesis at the time. And I'm like, well, this is just a gold mine, but I don't have time to even deal with this now. So when I got to doing my PhD, I'm like, I want to, I basically tried to formulate a topic that enabled me to, enabled me to really get my teeth into Gebser in a, in a, in a very serious way. And I was also drawn to, Schwaller de Lubitsch's work around the same time. So I ended up devising a, a thesis topic that somehow pulled both Gebser and Schwaller into, um, into its orbit. And that ended up 
that proved to be a little too ambitious and uh, I had to kind of cut Gebza out of the official final thesis. But anyway, um, my original, I guess the original idea I was working with, uh, the original, my original obsession, I suppose, was the dynamics of apotheosis. And Gebza's work struck me as interesting because he's looking at these different structures of human consciousness and, and how they understand different different facets of human culture, but also how they understand the divine. So, um, and what one thing he was looking at was, in particular, with the intellectual or the mental rational structure of consciousness, is that we we have this kind of tendency to theologize the divine and to understand the divine intellectually. Um, whereas previous to that, we had this more mythic, visionary experience of the divine. But he also suggested that we're on the cusp of a, a new consciousness which is able to understand the divine integrally. And so that was, that was kind of my, I guess, overarching question in, um, a, you know, how Gebza fit into the kinds of things I was interested in. And Schwaller was also looking at, he was dealing with the question of consciousness and, you know, human consciousness vis-a-vis divine consciousness uh, in, a, in a cognate way, I would say. Um, so essentially, um, when, I, when I realized Gebza was going to be a major part of my PhD thesis, I, I realized I can't just explore his ideas in a vacuum. I had to really understand his biography, his life, how he how he experienced his ideas and how they developed in relation to his his own development. And I did the same with Schwar. I think most people that I really get obsessed with, I want to know how the human being and how their life and their own experience relates to their to their work. And um, so that became part of the weaving, I suppose, that, that I ended up doing for several years with both of those figures. Okay. Can you, for those of uh, the audience who aren't familiar with Gebser, can you maybe give a quick little uh, bio for him and uh, just to kind of catch them up? Right. Right. Well, Gebser was a, a German poet and phenomenologist of consciousness. And he 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 was roughly contemporary with, uh, say, Carl Jung, and he was actually friends with Carl Jung. Uh, he was he was Gebser was interesting because he's a relatively neglected figure in in the history of twentieth century philosophy, but he rubbed shoulders with some of the the biggest figures in Europe at the time, from you know. Lorca and Picasso, Heisenberg, Jung, um, Lama Govinda. Um, the people he counted as, as personal friends are, are top-tier um, intellectuals. And so it's kind of surprising that he himself has been, been so neglect, neglected. And so I kind of felt an obligation to, to help, to kind of pull him a little bit out of his obscurity and present his ideas in the academic world a bit more. And uh, 
But he's best known for his his main work, The Ever-Present Origin, which deals with the, uh, the structures of human consciousness as they seem to evolve over time. But the very, very idea of time is itself a mental rational construct, which he, he shows, he dances around this kind of question very delicately, uh, showing that, that um, this, you know, this tendency to want to say consciousness evolves in a linear way through steps or stages is actually uh, a misleading way to frame it. And it's, it's entirely a mental rational way of framing it rather than an integral way of framing it. Yeah. His ideas around time are really fascinating and I can't, I, I can't say that I've totally wrapped my mind around it yet, but can you uh, also maybe talk about the term diaphany if I pronounced that right um, and its implications? I, I feel as though maybe it it has an influence on how you view things like alchemy, which we'll be talking about uh, in a little bit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, this is yeah. Gebze tried to articulate what he called the integral consciousness, and in order to do that, he he wanted to show what the stages of consciousness were before that. And so the, con- the stages of consciousness before the integral consciousness, he likened to um, kind of a not having a nocturnal or diurnal kind of flavor. So whereas the mythic structure of consciousness, he, he likened to like a kind of twilight. So it's kind of transitional between night and day. And then the, the rational structure of consciousness is very much like the the clear light of day that shines down on everything and makes everything uh, explicitly clear. Um, but this idea of diaphany or the, the transparency, um, he he likened the integral consciousness to this this transparency which renders both darkness and light present. So it's kind of like a medium through which um, all structures can become visible whether and whether those structures are of darkness or of light that transparency is able to let it be if that makes sense it's sort of the state of consciousness of the seer yeah um, it seems to mirror the visionary state of consciousness that is able to transcend duality and see the immense immensity of, of of the one in a hermetic sense am i wrong i do also liken it to what you get in in certain buddhist um experiences the, the sense of expanse or um you know what i wouldn't call it the emptiness but there's a sense of expanse in which all things are seen to take place or all things manifest within that expanse. It's like, uh, it's almost like the womb in which, which all beings gestate. Interesting. Yeah. You, you had written it somewhere. I can't remember where I pulled this from, but you wrote, uh, diaphany is not merely the ability to see through things, but to see the roots of things brimming up through the surface of things. So for me, that screams, or maybe not screams, but it it really uh, reminds me of sunyata or uh, emptiness in Buddhism, like you were saying. Whereas yeah. um, things are interdependent. There's an interbeing. 
Yeah, totally. Um, and Geb, one of Gab's own experiences uh, that he had later in life when he was traveling through um, was traveling through Asia, China, Japan, and 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 other places. Yeah, he had this. It, his own, really, his own enlightenment experience, from for want of a better word. And he described it. Well, he he actually met uh, Suzuki, um, Daitero Suzuki, the, the the Zen scholar. That's so strange. I was just thinking about Suzuki about a minute ago. <laughs> yeah, and. So he had this experience, and he told Suzuki about it, and uh, and Suzuki said, "That's not Satori. That is no." He said, "That's not sorry." He said, "That's not Samadhi. That's Satori." And um, so part of the part of what Gebza was trying to articulate in differentiating the experience of integral integral consciousness from, say, um, a mythic experience. Um, was that the integral consciousness had this has this lucidity about it, this kind of transparent lucidity, whereas he considered the samadhi-like experience as more being like swept away in an ecstatic trance. And uh, so, for him at least, the experience that he was trying to articulate was much more of this lucid sober quality where all the other structures of consciousness were able to be present without but without dominating the the experience that's very profound um it does seem to me it and, and we you know i'm 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 thinking of this uh, analogically it it re- recalls for me the Egyptian noon, the, mm. the abyss, the primal abyss. Yeah, I think I think what Gebs is getting at is this this because you know he did call his book the ever present origin, and it's the idea that origin is not something bound to time. It's not something that happened in the past that uh, we can never get back to. It is it is ever present and. There's a, there is a sense that you know those primal primal creative forces are acting presently now. They 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 are um, creatively present, and I think that's for me at least that's a really good. Uh, it's a really important point to to grasp from Gebser is that the the primordial is um, actually available now. It is. It is. It is ever presently with us, because uh, it, it, it is the the core of all being. Uh, and I do relate this also to to the Buddha nature idea as something that is not. It's not something we're we're striving to attain. It's not something we're building ourselves or evolving ourselves towards. It already is. You know, it, uh, I subscribe to the the view that. Um, we are already primordially awakened, and all we really need to do is just strip away the cognitive distortions and emotional afflictions that are preventing us from realizing what already is. I I would agree. That's very well said. Um, 
So how does this influence your your perspective when you're working on looking at alchemy? Right. Um, that's a good question. I think, well, I'd, I'd see, I do see the, uh, the alchemical attainment, this idea of this um, gold, this spiritual gold that the, the alchemist is trying to attain. And I do see it in very much the same way. Uh, that is not, it's not a perfection that we are building or evolving ourselves or something else towards it. It, it. it exists primordially and ever presently. And we are simply just stripping away the impurities preventing it uh, for that, that are preventing us from realizing it now. And um, I do liken this, you know, I mean, I think the best image of this is Michelangelo and his statue who, and the idea that, well, in this rough piece of stone is a, is a, is a perfect masterpiece. And all the artist is doing is just removing the excess, the excess matter that is, is uh, hiding it. And alchemy is often described as a, as an art of separation, of separating the pure from the impure. And in that sense, I, I, I see it as, as exactly that. You're just stripping away the impurities that are veiling this primordial perfection. Well, I think we've just cut to the core of alchemy. <laughs> uh, so very well said. Um, so we didn't quite take a linear progression in talking about alchemy. Um, so yeah, we just dive right in. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, it, it may seem... Oh, sorry. No, uh, carry on. I was just going to say, it, it may seem a little bit rudimentary at this point to define alchemy for, for the audience uh, in the broadest sense, um, but it is very nuanced when you look at it historically. Um, you've, you've got mm. one side, as you point out in, in alchemical traditions and other works, that there is one side that sees it as almost purely empirical and scientific and kind of a, a precursor to chemistry and, and science, which it is in, in a, to a degree. And then um, this other side of things, which is purely psychological or spiritual. And I think you make the argument that it doesn't need to be one way or the other. So historically, can you map alchemy for us? Um, has it always been a mix of the two things or did it start as one or the other and how did it progress is that too much of a big question <laughs> that that's a big question but that's okay um i think more and more i think of alchemy very much like a a metaphysical doctrine like Taoism, and as with Taoism, you have many applications of the Tao. So you have an application of Taoism in, you know, medicine, Chinese medicine, you know, acupuncture and the whole system of the meridian systems of the body and the whole herbal treatments. You have an application of Taoism in martial arts or, or feng shui and any, there's a, any other number of disciplines are all, I guess, manifestations or applications of this core 
metaphysical doctrine of the Tao. And um, I think alchemy is very much like that. So with alchemy, you have you have a metallurgical up, um, you have a metallurgical application, you have a psychological application, and everything in between. You have you have a radical spiritual application, and uh, you know the same is true with Taoism. You, um, and the thing with Taoism is that there is also Taoist alchemy. Uh, arguably, the oldest alchemies that we know were were the Chinese alchemists, and that was always in a Taoist context. And um, but you know, the, I think there's evidence. Joseph Needham, in particular, was one of the the main people that tried to argue that there is a historical um, connection between Chinese alchemy and the origins of this Greco-Egyptian alchemy. And he's, he was arguing for a, I guess, a historical transmission. Um, I don't think that needs to, to be the case. But um, there are certainly, you know, two main currents of alchemy. There's, there's a Western current coming out of the, the Greco-Egyptian world. And there is a, an Eastern current coming mainly out of China, but also emerging in India and also Tibet. You know, I... I don't like to conceive them too separately. I mean, as from a purely historical point of view uh, or an academic point of view, um, a lot of people would prefer that you confine yourself to a very narrow expression of alchemy. So if you're going to be a scholar of alchemy, you should study, say, 17th century German um you know, Paracelsian or Rosicrucian um, contexts, and that's that's really all you do. And I've never really felt comfortable staying within those kinds of narrow confines. But at the same time, I I, I do feel it's very important to be attentive to those deep, concrete contexts. So. Yeah, I always feel a bit of a push and pull between being very narrow and deep and being very broad. But I think certainly with alchemy, uh, you know, and this, you know, you could say the same about the, um, well, the Western alchemical tradition vis-a-vis the the Eastern alchemy is is, is that um, our Western alchemical tradition is kind of a broken tradition. We, we kind of have to reconstruct it and piece together fragments from, you know, 2,000 or more years of, 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 um, of history. And with the Eastern alchemies, we, have, we still have living traditions um, which give us a more holistic picture of what alchemy is as a living whole, and I think what's in, what what needs to happen more and more with when studying these kinds of things, you need to take. It's like having a transfusion from a healthy donor. Like the Western tradition needs to have a a transfusion of living blood from from a living tradition in order to for it to kind of function as a as a whole again. Uh, and and I'm, I guess I'm speaking about this more 
from a practitioner's point of view, or rather than rather than a purely historic uh, a purely historian's point of view, but um, there is a sense that by looking at those two broad traditions, um, you can help. Well, one can help you understand the other better because it fills in some of the the, the missing pieces that the historical record has not left us. If that makes sense. Absolutely. I was actually just talking with someone today about how hoodoo and um, Afro-Caribbean arts are kind of being used to fill in holes with uh, things like the PGM, uh, the Greek magical papyri. Totally, yeah. And systems like that. And yeah, it makes total sense from a practitioner's point of view. I mean, of course, there's going to be people that are are not going to like that, but um, it does certainly make sense on a certain level. Mm. And one of the things, I think the, the thing that really um, made that explicit for me was reading Kim Lai's contribution to alchemical traditions, which is the book I edited and published some years ago, uh, which is coming out in a revised edition um, later this year. But Kim Lai wrote a, a masterful piece on Tibetan alchemy. And one of those things, he shows is that the relationship between the external alchemy, so it's the mineral and botanical preparations and the elixir making, and the um, the internal alchemy, which is essentially um, the attainment of gnosis and liberation. Uh, and he he showed how basically those all those external preparations. Uh, all those longevity practices were essentially essentially they all boiled down to buying more time to achieve liberation in this life. And so you can make alexes or herbal preparations or mineral and metallic um, preparations. And so, yeah, that they literally if, – if, all, all those, and also the, I guess, I guess this, this does border border on the internal alchemy to some degree. I guess it's a it's a kind of mesocosm between internal and external alchemy uh, that's based more in the um, biophysical practices, like the the pranayama and. Um, the practices that are as much physical as as spiritual. Um, those kind of practices are about you know purifying the energetic passageways in the body, the meridians, and, and so forth. Again, these are all, I guess, preparatory uh, ways to uh, help achieve the the primordial gnosis that is the ultimate aim of. At least, at least the radical spiritual alchemy. Very cool. And um, you mentioned um, Paracelsus and talking about the Tibetan alchemy. I was reading, um, I got this quote from your Basilian Aphorisms uh, book, which is an excellent book through Rebedo Press. Um, this quote from him, the heavens operate within us, and because of this, the true phys- physician has the capacity to assess the heavens in the human being. Of course, that's a Western uh, kind of Platonic 
view of things, but that's also how the Tibetans were looking at things as well. Is that is that right? Oh yeah, definitely. Yeah, there's there's that sense of the inner firmament. Um, absolutely. Which is interesting. So where, how, where's the connection in your mind? If you were to make a guess, I mean, did, do you think that China was the birthplace of what we know as alchemy or do you think all these different cultures kind of just came to these truths independently? Yeah, I think I tend to think that, um, Something like alchemy is a little bit like, like trying to find the you know single historical origin of of something like alchemy is is kind of like trying to find the single historical origin of something like magic. It's like oh, most cultures at some point will develop those spiritual technologies. Um, it's not really about a historical origin that was then transmitted everywhere, you know. To, to, but at the same time, there are distinct historical lines of development and transmission, um, and you can certainly trace those. I don't think, I personally don't think China seeded the alchemies of the the, um, the Greco-Egyptian world. I, I think that the alchemy that emerged out of that world has its roots deep in pharaonic Egypt. And they really only start to emerge in Hellenistic times in a, in a way that we can historically pin down. Uh, by, the, by the time we get to Zosimos of Panopolis, for instance, we've got concrete, a body of concrete texts that only really makes sense when we look at the the temple culture of Roman Egypt, you know, um, and this, this is what Shannon Grimes looked at in her uh, her book on Zosimos, which yeah, which I published at the end of last year. Um, so yeah, when I I do look at, I do tend to see the genesis of the Western alchemical tradition in exactly that context, and it emerged out of the Egyptian temples into a very syncretistic. Hellenis, uh, Hellenized world, which was, yeah, uh, it's just the same period as the Greek magical papyri and the, the the Gnostic codices, and there was so much, uh, you know, amazing stuff going on in that period, um, and um, and from there it uh, it was transmitted via. Islamic world uh, to Europe. So it had it well, it wasn't just transmitted via the Islamic world. It, it had a significant period of development and gestation in, in the Islamic world before being um, transmitted to Europe. There was also a Byzantine past, which is less known. Um, so from the, I guess, the Greek or Roman world or the, the Greek or Egyptian world, alchemy went via Islam to Europe, but there was also a body of um, literature that went through Byzantium and came to Europe that way. And that is actually, th those texts are the the ones that, um, like the, the Zosimos texts and all those, 
the Greek alchemical corpus essentially um, was preserved through uh, through Byzantine channels. I'm glad you glad you mentioned Zosimos. He's definitely one of our, our favorite historical characters. Yeah, and, absolutely. And uh, we loved having Shannon on on the show as well, and she really opened our eyes to a lot of things um, mm. during that period. Yeah, she. Well, it's important. I'm sorry. No, no, carry on. I was just going to say it, it's important to understand the the sort of Gnostic synthesis that happened in Alexandria because. Um, People, I don't think people understand the spiritual implications of what was going on there. I mean, it, it you know, Alexandria's effects on alchemy and and just the the spiritual culture of both West and and East had reverberated for centuries. Mm. And, and I, in in my understanding, and it's it's probably not as um, not as well developed as yours, Aaron. But in my understanding, Byzantium is really they, there was really an inherit. They really inherited what was going on in Alexandria because you had Michael Sellos' school. Uh, you had, you know, uh, the it was really the center of Christendom at the time, mm. um, and then it was an alchemical center, and it was also a major crossroads of East and West. So there was this, there was this intensive synthesis of of uh, alchemy, of theurgy, of magic and mysticism that was occurring uh for instance in constantinople that that uh i think is is somewhat right now it's not fashionable so it's it's not as popular to discuss as say i don't know grimoires Mm. but it's very important yeah oh absolutely um i do have a, a a very soft spot for um the Eastern Orthodox theology as well, you know, that whenever I read some of those um, figures like Maximus the Confessor, I almost feel it's 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 like, almost like an alchemical um, theology. Uh, you know, he talks about the dual nature of Christ being like an, a sword um, irradiated by fire, you know, and the the sword both cuts and burns. It's got the because it's got this dual nature, um, you know. And I, those, those kind of images have always stuck with me. Um, they feel so alchemical to me. Uh, but it kind of gets you know. I like that image because it's and one you know. This is one thing I try to I've always tried to do with my scholarship on alchemy is to show that alchemy. Uh, we need to uh, we stop. We need to stop talking about alchemy as, as if it's either um, purely physical or, or, or radically spiritual. Like uh, it, it can be both and at the same time. And it's my, I guess it's my, if I want to con- contribute anything to the scholarly uh, debate on alchemy, it's that there is, a, I guess, a non-dual form of alchemy that, integrates both the material and the, and the spiritual ex- expression. And that image of this, the sword irradiated, irradiated by fire, I think is, is a nice um, expression of that. 
I find it funny that you bring that symbol up because that sword in the Eastern tradition is called the sword of wisdom. And I, I always, mm -hmm. in my understanding of it, because it's held by Dharma protectors like Fudo Miu right. uh, or Achalavidya Raja and people like that. But I've also always seen it as the sword of Sophia right. because frequently it has a serpent coiled around it. Yeah, that's, that's interesting. Um, and the, you know, the, I think the wisdom aspect is really important, like the Sophianic dimension to all of this. Um, Which relates you know, back to the non-dual character. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and yeah, for me, a lot of this stuff comes back to, uh, I guess, because it's just my own part of of grasping and understanding non-dualism because I, I didn't always i didn't immediately take to the idea of non-dualism it took me some time to assimilate it um and so there's i guess i've had certain points in my own development where certain images or certain ideas have really helped kind of crack it open and that oddly enough the other one that one of the main ones one of the first ones that really um that really kind of planted the seed for me was a, a quote by Ram Prasad, where he's he was a, a Kali devotee, and I think it's talking about severing um, all your illusions with this non-dual sword of wisdom. I mean, they're more or less his exact words, and. Uh, that one took me a while to kind of, I don't know, I knew that, that there was something important there that I couldn't deny. And so this idea of this non-dual sort of wisdom really kind of, no, it stuck with me uh, until I could start to understand it. And um, that goes back some way. But I didn't actually make the connection to the um, the, irradi the irradiated sword of, of um, the dual nature of Christ until now, but um, yeah, that's that's actually an interesting motif we could get lost in. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think Zosimos, back to Zosimos, I, I feel like he was a good example of, you know, it doesn't have to be totally empirical, uh, metallurgic uh, alchemy or totally spiritual. He was a great example of of both. Well, that's the thing. I mean, Zosimos alone shows us that he here we have a figure who is working in an Egyptian temple context, overseeing artisans, statue makers, people working with uh, you know polychromic metallic finishes on uh, divine images. But and so he's working with very concrete craft practices but he's also working with explicitly gnostic and spiritual practices you know uh he's you know he would be meditate he talk about using a, a mirror of electrum to meditate upon in order to unite with the divine mind um or he talks about um liberating the man of light from the body of clay you know and um Again, this this that image in particular is one that I think it comes back to what I spoke about earlier about this idea of 
um, separating the pure from the impure, removing this outer shell or husk that is veiling the primordial perfection that that already exists within. Um, and and right there, you have Zosimos talking about the same thing. Sure. Would you would you also agree that maybe alchemy, in addition to being something that you can uh, remove defilements and and bring out your own personal gold that it is a vehicle for maybe kind of in a in the iamblichian way um becoming a a demiurge or doing your demiurgic uh soul's work in kind of manipulating uh matter and and changing things in that way oh yeah yes definitely i mean i you know, when I when I hear my when I when I hear myself speaking words like separating the pure from the impure, um, I do feel that it has a little bit of a dualistic cast to it, which can be misleading. And I do, but I do think alchemy is very theurgical and very demiurgical. And I kind of see, I think I do write about this in one of my contributions to the alchemy book, but. This idea of alchemy, um, I, I kind of like it. I kind of liken it to there's two arcs. There's an arc of anabasis or ascent or apotheosis, where you're becoming God or becoming one with the divine in that theogic sense, um, or becoming a vehicle for for that divinity. And then there's a. And once you're there, you you know you don't just stop and and stand there and say now okay now i i am god you have to act you have to act in a divine capacity and that is the demiurgy you you are uh, you become a participant in the cosmogony uh you you know become a a for a divine uh shaping force or pattern which is just laying down that divine force upon you know the substrate of the universe and um I definitely think that, to me, that is a very alchemical arc. There's the Anabasis and the Catabasis. It's also very Heraclitian, you know, in the sense that the path up and the path down are, are one and the same. But there's a, the other thing, too, is that dealing with impurities or obscurations to this primordial perfection, um, my own experience has, has really been more about, instead of just removing them, uh, has been more about you have to engage and transform them. You have to make the purity, um, sorry, you have to make the impurities and the poisons vehicles for your liberation. Um, it's not as easy as just removing them. Um, you have to, uh, yeah, you have to transform them. Well, that's what Arthur Avalon, I think, would have called the tantric distinction. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and I do think that's where alchemy and tantra and and theurgy, I would say, start to align. Absolutely. Well, and I think that when it comes to demiurgy, um, people need to understand that as incarnate beings who come from a Gnostic perspective, as incarnate beings that come from a divine origin, uh, it's sort of a expression of noblesse oblige. Like we are obligated while incarnate to care for and improve the 
scenario that we've been placed within. And there's this, I think, component of communication implicit in that action because the builder has, still needs a blueprint and the blueprint needs to be received uh, from a place that is prior to the, um, the later production of the lower realms, if that makes sense. Mm, mm. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. The other, I guess the other, and this is, you know, the other part of alchemy that I think is important comes more out of my my personal experiences um, of engaging poisons and transforming forming them into medicines. You know, if you define alchemy as a path of exactly that, transforming poison into medicine, how do we how do we engage samsara and liberate it? Because you know everything that is an impediment on the path is actually potentially um, the path itself. And that, again, this is, this is a much more tantric um, attitude to alchemy. Uh, but, you know, we, we also did have, in the Hindu tradition, we do, we do have actual tantric alchemy, uh, which, which is engaging, much more engaging of, the body of sexuality uh, and and so-called impurities as paths to apotheosis rather than impediments. I love that you you mentioned poison. That was one of the things that I wanted to bring up. You mentioned poison in your wonderful book, The Leaf of Immortality. And I'm just curious if we can go a little bit further into that idea. Um, I mean, medicine could be poison. It just depends on the dosage. So that's kind of where we're going. Where do you see... So you, you have some experience in the Typhonian kind of stream um, personally, and I don't know if you want to get into it, but what, what do you see as the role of, of Set uh, or Typhon in the kind of the Osirian drama and, and the kind of the personal personal drama mm. and the, the place for yeah. that? There is a place. And, and I, want to, I just want to jump in real quick before I lose it. <laughs> I like what you said about the venom, or I mean about the poison thing, because as probably all of us know the antidote to the bite of a serpent is made from the venom in the up from that self same serpent mm. yeah exactly yeah that's a good point um as regards to the typhonic stuff i mean that was material that i worked very closely with quite a quite a long time ago now uh, it's not really where i'm at now but it was enough to give me a deep engagement with it i do think set or typhon is integral to the Assyrian drama. Uh, I do think he is part of the, what I would call the divine ecology. You know, he has a role. Uh, and certainly in the, the solar cycle, when, you know, when Ra descends into the underworld every night, uh, it's usually set that um, moves to the prow of the solar bark, which is the vehicle which moves through the underworld, and def- defeats the Apep serpent. And that is that is absolutely necessary for the sun to rise again i'm not sure how familiar you are with that that motif but essentially the sun the sun god descends into the underworld every night and before it rises again it is threatened by this inimical chaos serpent which is you know represents um all the forces of non-being all the forces that uh, are opposed to anything coming into being in, in, in the cosmos. And so every, 
morning before the sun rises, the sun god has to overcome the serpent. And, you know, and, and Set is usually one of the main gods that steps forth and slays the serpent, uh, enabling the sun to, to rise. And so, and also, you know, there's some really interesting mythological details because um, I would argue that, it, that he also plays a similar role in the Osirian drama because we all know that Set kills Osiris, but it's less emphasized that he also plays a role in his resurrection. And that element comes out more in the, the mouth-opening ritual. Um, if you look at the details of the mouth-opening ritual, which is the, the rite for animating the dead, animating statues, uh, and consecrating images. And oddly enough, this is very closely bound to the origins of alchemy because figures like Zosimos uh, were essentially overseeing statue makers making divine images which would then be animated by these rites like the the mouth opening ritual and the mouth opening ritual is called the mouth opening ritual because it opened the mouth and eyes of the statue so that it could see it could breathe it could receive food offerings it became a living sentient perceiving being and so this rite I guess the the uh, resurrection of Osiris is really the, the the archetypal statue animation. So in the mouth opening ritual, what the, the the core part of the ritual, they would take a the foreleg, they would cut the foreleg off a bull. They would make a bull sacrifice. I cut the foreleg off and offer it to the statue once it had been once its mouth had been opened. So it would, they would offer it the prime cut of meat. Now, the foreleg of a bull was um, associated with the strength of the god Set. Um, there was a constellation uh, which, well, the constellation Ursa Major, um, which you, I guess you guys would call the Big Dipper, was known to the Egyptians as the foreleg of Set or the thigh of the bull. So this this offering of this thigh, the bull's thigh, was, um, you know, it has this setting undertone. But after they offered the, this bull's thigh to the statue, um, the scenes in the mouth opening ritual, then kind of they replaced that with an adze, an adze being a kind of like a, a carving tool with an iron blade. And um, so they use this tool with an iron blade to to also open the mouths of the gods or of the statues. And but specifically, that iron blade is associated again with Set because iron was not natively mined in Egypt. It was um, it came from meteors. That the only source of iron in Egypt was from meteoric iron, and meteoric iron was understood to fall from the undying stars, according to the Egyptians. And those undying stars were, were precisely the stars that didn't rise or set. They were the, the circumpolar stars. And in particular, they were the, the stars of the constellation Ursa Major. So again, all, and when you look really closely at the, the instruments of, mouth, of the mouth-opening ritual, you always 
you're always drawn back to the iconography of Set. For me, that, that was always really striking because he was the god that murdered Osiris and dismembered him, as we all know, but he, uh, his, his instruments and his materials were also um, vital in his resurrection. I think that was really nice, nicely said. Um, thank you for laying that out for us. I also see, from the Christian point of view, I see Judas as uh, performing that same function, in a way, uh, for the, the resurrection. He is seen as the enemy, but without the actions of Judas, there wouldn't have been a resurrection necessarily, at least how the story Ooh. plays out. So I, I see a parallel there for sure. Yeah, I've always, I've often made that kind of connection myself, actually. Um, yeah, without without Judas, there would be no passion of, of of Christ, you know. Right. Unfortunately, there is no appreciation of that. Um, like there is uh, a, a little bit of a deeper appreciation or understanding of of that role for for Set in the on the Egyptian side of things. There is. None of that on the Christian side. Mm, mm, yeah, yeah. No, it's it's nice to have a more nuanced, a nuanced mythos. Well, and another thing that's been coming to my mind lately is the idea that we need to look at myth as as you know definitive of as symbolic and definitive of archetypal archetypal pattern. But we also need to be willing to exercise due judgment when we're interpreting myth because we have to understand that the stories we inherit uh, have been rewritten at times, have been informed by biases, both positive and negative, in favor and against certain figures, depending on historical tides. Um, So we don't really know we don't really know what the true story is with the particular spiritual being unless we engage it directly, unless we attempt to directly interact with this being like um, another being that kind of fits this archetypal pattern that we're just, we're talking about here with uh, said with Judas is, is Loki because he plays a similar role in the slaying of Balder in the Germanic myth. However, uh, if it wasn't for the slaying of Balder, uh, you know, after the sort of apocalyptic uh, scenario that Snorri describes, there wouldn't be Balder wouldn't be coming from the underworld to uh, help create the new world. So there's this mm-hmm. there's this actually positive role again with a sort of dying resurrection solar figure, but then again, on top of that, we have to understand that someone like Snorri is a Christian redactor who was rewriting oral myths, kind of like Plutarch in his description of the Isis and Osiris passion. And I think that it's really crucial to get to direct experience, to realize that we're talking about timeless, mythic, spiritual reality that we can directly engage and interact with. And it's part of our inheritance as human beings. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think it was Jung that talked about archetypes often being like dried riverbeds, and um, 
Yeah, but when the water comes flooding down, it kind of reanimates it as a living phenomenon, you know. And I think there is a difference between just merely studying myths in, 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 in an intellectual way and having that lifeblood flow through it and, uh, and animating it in a, you know, an experiential way. And Aaron, that's one of the things I value so much about you is that you merge this sort of very rigorous scholarly approach to things. I mean, honestly, I think the books you're putting out with Rubedo are some of the highest quality esoteric books out there right now. I, I think aesthetically and in terms of intellectual, you know, intellectual quality, even the editing, it's just very, very high quality what you're producing. But I also see you bring this element of personal experience to it that it's funny you bring Jung up because he's another person that was able to do that. He was very rigorous, but I mean, you, his entire corpus is informed with his personal experience. And I, I think that that's sort of what sets, it's a sort of benchmark that sets certain people apart, whether we're talking about Jung or, or Schwaller, Delubis, or, you know, what you're doing, there is a difference between people who are just taking the map and people who are integrating the right. two. Yeah, and I think, you know, I think people can sense that, even if you don't acknowledge it explicitly, a, a reader can can feel it, you know? And I think that's, I mean, I I did go through the academy and did a PhD and all of that, and I kept you know, most of my work in that context was kept very rigorous and very academic. And I wasn't like wearing my um, personal investment in esotericism on my sleeve or anything like that. But, I, you know, I, I kind of realized that they can feel it and sense it anyway. So I stopped really, I stopped trying to hide it. And I started slowly becoming more open about my own experiential basis of, uh, you know, um, my own path, I suppose. Because in, in many ways, the, my whole academic career is, was just one way of, for me to deepen my understanding of the things that were drawing me. It wasn't like I was setting out to be an academic because that's what I wanted to be. It was... It was a pass along the way, to, and it was, a, it was a means of deepening intellectually. And you know, I think that intellectual rigor is really important in, in, in deepening our understanding of you know, our spiritual path. But it can also be it's a two-edged sword. It, it can also work against us. It can trap us in narrow um, cerebral intellectualism, which can be stifling to genuine spiritual experience and so i think i think i felt myself almost starting to succumb to that trap and and i needed to get out of it and and so i did um and it was it was people like peter kingsley actually who really uh inspired me with their model or their their way because he, he was someone that came out of very rigorous work in classics, you know, probably one of the most conservative disciplines out there and uh, published his book through Oxford University Press and, and so on. And then 
slowly started to speak more from a, a much more personal place and a place that felt much more real. Um, but, you know, at the same time, you could still sense that gravitas in his formal scholarly works as well. So, um, yeah, I, I kind of, I feel much more comfortable um, unveiling the, I guess the, the deeper, more personal source of my own, my own work now than I ever, you know, did say 10 years ago. That's, that's awesome that you are able to express yourself in that way and you aren't as stifled. Um, I like that you mentioned Peter Kingsley because yeah, he, he's criticized sometimes by scholars for maybe being a little bit too, um, uh, loose with, with things, having an opinion basically. (laughs) Um, yeah. But I, I got some of that out. Of, I, I read your um, The Perfect Black. I really liked that article a lot from the alchemical traditions. And I had to read over it a few times just because it was a piece that I could really meditate on. But I, I felt like your voice really was able to come through there. It was, it was certainly um, scholarly, but um, there, was, there was a voice behind it and it was almost poetic at times. So I, I really enjoyed that. Um, and I'm glad you are able to kind of free yourself a little bit right. and, but, and express yourself in that way. That's interesting because that, you know, that would be a piece I would consider my more, more or less strictly academic mode. But um, like you say, it, people can sense another voice or, or behind it. It's a little bit, like you say, more poetic or more, it's animated by something that's, that's not merely academic. And um, yeah. what are your thoughts on symbol and the symbolic as the medium of transference between those two poles? Could you elaborate? You know, if we're thinking about, say, the ancient Egyptian mode of communication, written communication, it's it's entirely symbolic, and the symbol is is something that is in both worlds. It represents, it is a sort of pseudo concrete thing. It is an image, but at the same time, it's Mm. um, infused with both rational and pre-rational meaning. And so you have this rigorous, um, disciplined, hermetic, I think one could honestly say, academic approaches, scholarly approach and then you have this intuitive personal visceral mystical interior experience which engages the inner world and i think that the symbol in a way is a sort of twilight method of communication and um confluence between those two words does that make sense oh absolutely yeah um Symbols are definitely multi-layered, and uh, I mean, what you just described reminds me very much of something Gebser said about language. He said, you know, language, like a, a, a any given word, has layers that reflect the structures of human consciousness, and so there is the there is the raw sound itself, the, you know, the physical sound we make with our bodies. Um, which almost has like a mantra, it has a visceral, but also like a mantric like quality to it. Um, then there's a, what he would call a mythic layer, 
which is the image that is associated with that word. So a word will evoke imagery and that has a whole mystic uh, connotation. And then, then there's a mental rational layer which wants to, um, it's the conceptual element of the word. And the mental rational aspect wants to kind of delimit it to a very precise meaning, whereas the other layers are much more ambivalent and ambiguous. Can, you can have dual meanings, you know, or, or multiple meanings, whereas the, the conceptual, mental, rational layer wants to kind of pin it down to one and be very precise. And so an integral approach is to, to something is to take all those layers as ever-present. And um, I do think of this when using language as well, but, but any, it applies to symbols. You know, if you use language, and this is something that happens with academic language, you, you often end up using language that has no soul. <laughs> uh, it, and language that has no soul has no, has no image associated with it. If it has no image or no, no sonic resonance, then you know your language is, is, is extremely limited. It's not evoking, you know, something deeper than its intellectual. It seems like we're coming back to this idea of non-duality. Um, Janice, I thought that was really interesting, as symbols being kind of the juncture between uh, spirituality and, uh, you know, materialism, if I'm, I'm understanding it correctly, what you were saying. Yeah. The, I think that the other thing I was going to add was really an angle that I take from Schwala, who talked about symbolique and symbol in the sense, pretty much in a theurgic sense. So you know, the symbols that we use to call upon the gods, for instance, are, are not random. They're not conventional symbols that we just randomly associate with that entity. They are things that are in some way created by that entity. They're the physical product of that entity's existence in the physical world. World, and so by means of that, we can trace that connection back to its source. And um, so, there's we're using something in the in the visible world to connect to the invisible origin of that thing. Uh, does that make sense? Yeah, that's kind of goes back to the Heraclitian idea. Um, I believe that's what I'm getting. Is you have to uh, mm. move away from the origin in order to to reach the origin. Right, right. Uh, it, it also, uh, I think, relates to the uh, Neoplatonic idea of divine tokens and uh, even the, what is it, mm-hmm. that phrase from the Chaldean oracles uh, about symbols sown in holy souls. And it certainly reminds me of mm-hmm. the Hermetic Kerakion or Caduceus, which is a hallmark of the um, Hermopolitan uh, Brotherhood. Yeah, yeah. I think um, this idea of symbols being kind of like ladders, you know, they're, 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 or Heraclitian paths up and paths down. You know. There are an anabasis and a catabasis. They're, um, they're kind of links between the world above and the world below. And uh, I do like that idea. Um, the symbol on the Greek sense being a like a token that was broken in two and much in the same way as those, those lovers heart lockets that you'd, you'd break, you know, and one each person would keep one half. 
um, and a symbol being this thing that you'd put back together again to show, you know, this solidarity. But there's a sense that the the symbol is 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 that, but it, it's linking above and below, you know, and it's um, it's conjoining the invisible world to the visible world. Even in um, you, know, you get this in in mythology the the reforging of the broken sword, you know, it's like the reforging of the those two realms in a way. It's like the conjunctio, the union mystica, the hermetic marriage. Aaron, do you see do you see sulfur as being kind of in the uh, the alchemical sense, being what what we would use as a, a symbol to to talk about combining the salt and the mercury, or or holding those things together? Um, yeah, absolutely. I think um, well, those yeah, talking about symbolism with those hermetic symbols, so sulfur, mercury, and salt is actually really interesting. And, and here I'm really taking my ideas here are very influenced by Schwaler, who spent a lot of time dealing with those symbols or those realities. And my understanding is that what you're dealing with a juncture of two things that produce a third thing. And what's more is that they have a, there's a sense that it's, it's almost like the Platonic idea of the, the um or the it's like a paternal principle which acts upon a maternal principle to produce a, an offspring mm. and in this context sulfur is like the paternal principle mercury is the maternal principle and salt is the conjunction of the two the offspring because um and what's interesting there is with um cinnabar is actually uh, in a chemical sense, it is literally the salt of sulfur and mercury. Um, but what's, what I find really interesting is that you, you, we're dealing with basically this idea that there's an unformed, there's an unformed matter which is informed by a informing principle. Like a, a, there's a there's form without matter that imposes itself on the matter without form. And then that conjunction gives rise to formed matter. So it's very, it's very Platonic, yeah. Conception. And that's 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 kind of how I I tend to read the core of what Schwaller is talking about when he's talking about sulfur, mercury, and salt. So there's like a yeah, there's like a mes- there's, there's like a metaphysical force and also almost a protophysical force that and when they combine, they they produce the this the sensible physical universe as we know it it almost relates back to uh like the purusha and prakriti yeah of um of sankhya you know ideas too oh yeah but also on the other hand isis and osiris and horus yeah yeah and that's what's interesting there and this this actually comes up in some some alchemical texts and it comes up in one of the ones i'm working on at the moment um but this idea um, that, and this, you know, that the that the son or the child in that in that relationship is the father of itself through the mother, and um, it, it has a kind of a Christic theology to it that you know the father and the son are the same, but they both proceed through the matrix of the divine mother. But it also makes sense to me 
It's the only thing that really makes sense to me of the fact that in Egyptian mythology you get a Horus the elder and a Horus the younger. You know, you get you get this figure that has both the role of father and 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 son um, in relation to a a divine mother figure. It also recalls to me the in the book of the the book of the spiral force of Ray and the felling of a pep. I think there's a line attributed to Amen as Capri, where he says, I, I, I've rendered it in my own language, which is um, by coming into being, I gave birth to myself and thus established the way of coming into being. And that kind of, I think, relates to what you're saying, although I could be wrong. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, I can see. Yeah, I'm... I'm I hadn't made that connection before, but I can definitely see that as an expression of it. Yeah, it's it is a it's a kind of a paradoxical in the way I've formulated it or explained it. It's it it is a paradoxical kind of situation uh, where someone can be the father of themselves, and this you know, this is the um, getting back to the I guess the dual nature of Christ in a way is that this irradiated sword that can both cut and burn it has two natures and two actions it is metaphysical and physical you know there is that gospel passage too where he says I, i've come to set fire to the world and uh, i i'm i'm going to watch until it burns but yeah um i hadn't thought about it connection it's not all kumbaya oh yeah and is that the like I don't come to bring peace, but to wield a sword and <laughs> all that good stuff. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I like that edge, you know, pun unintended, but I, I've never felt a spirituality that is all peace and love is uh, engaging enough for me. I, I, need, I need a darker edge to it um, for it to, I don't know, not, it's not about dark. It's more about intensity. It has to have, an adequate intensity to it to capture me, and uh, usually I get that from the from the darker edges of the religious spectrum. I was going to ask you about that because because I have the same kind of impulse. What, what do you think that what what does that speak to, in your opinion? That kind of need for an edge. Yeah, um, is that a a benefit or a detriment? <laughs> well, I, I can only speak for myself. Really, it's not a pass. I would. I mean, I, I'm very cognizant that the path that works for me is not necessarily the path that is going to work for everyone. But I do think intensification is really important. And this is actually the term that Gebser uses a lot. He doesn't talk so much about the expansion of consciousness or the evolution of consciousness. He talks about the intensification of consciousness. And in a similar way, I kind of feel the spiritual path has to be about a similar kind of intensification where, uh, you know, it's, there's a saying that uh, a ship is safe in the harbour, but is, that's, not, that's not what ships are built for. And I think spirituality is like that. And mainstream religions uh, tend, tend to be, they tend to be safe harbours, but that's mm. not what the spiritual path is really about. And, so it's kind of like I often I often think of it as like a like a flame, you know. The spiritual path is, is a flame 
we nurture a flame and there's certain experiences or things that can blow our flame out very easily. So, so there are structures which seek to protect our weak flame from being snuffed out by, by, you know, by some chaotic uh, thing. But, um, you know, my attitude coming more from the tantric and the left-handed kind of path is, is, has always been to intensify that flame to the point where you can throw it into the winds and those winds will stoke it through a huge fire rather than snuff it out. Mm. And I am by no means a, an alchemist, but bringing it back to the alchemical symbolism, um, you need to have the blackening if we're going to be talking about uh, the sword and the fire mm-hmm. um, before you can before you can move on to the the silver and then the gold yeah. and the red. Yeah, that's the the, you know, the the blackening is always the putrefaction or it's a death you know that precedes the rebirth. And um, you know, this gets back to uh, I'm sure you guys are familiar with with this motif, the idea of philosophy as as preparation for death, you know, the original idea um, going back to Socrates, you know, philosophy is not this path of just, you know, trying to formulate a rational systematized view of the world. It's, It's actually a path of consciously confronting death with through the gnosis that the soul is immortal. And I, I guess a lot of, mainstream spiritualities don't push you to that confrontation. You know, that they give you faith that when you come to your actual physical death, then there'll be something on the other side of it. But, um, you know, a, a, a spiritual path that is, that is fully lived in this life must learn to engage. Well, that, that, you know, this is the idea of the initiatory death that you have to undergo before you can mm-hmm. get anywhere. It, it could be painful. It could be scary. I mean, this reminds me of the the people in the boiling cauldron that Zosimos saw in his vision. Yeah. It's not all flowers and rainbows. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and it, it makes me think, too, about the popularity of esotericism right now in magic. It, you know, when we were, I think we're around the same age, Aaron, and we were younger, it was far more of an outsider experience to be involved in occultism or esotericism and for good reason because it does take you out of the world and it transforms you and makes you weird it makes you other and um conventional religion is sort of like an easy hobby and uh seen as an easy hobby in the province of the elderly and uh you know, platitudes are offered, but when people are confronted with some of the things, say, the Gnostics said, which is, among other things, for instance, that, like, this world is actually part of the underworld, they don't, they become upset when they hear Mm. things like that, which challenge their understanding and make them uncomfortable. But isn't, there's a saying in the Gospel of Thomas, you know, seek and you will find when you find you become amazed. After you're amazed, you'll become disturbed. And after you're disturbed, you'll rule over all. you rule over all. <laughs> you know, and it, it's... Nice. Yeah, yeah. It's a mysterious saying, but the 
each phase of that process, I guess you could probably even sort of associate those phases with alchemical phases, but, you know, it's not really something, you're not always going to be comfortable. You're not always going to be happy. You're not always going to be enjoying yourself when you're engaging in these, this kind of work. Yeah. And I think that's, you know, that comes back to the idea of the, the poison as something to be engaged and transformed rather than uh, simply just removed or extricated. You know? It's like we're always, you know, we're in samsara. We are in mortal bodies that will suffer and die. We, and we need to come to terms with that discomfort and that suffering um, as, you know, paths of liberation. How do we, how do we, uh, transform those into vehicles of of gnosis and and not just you know the inevitable deterioration of our bodies but also our emotional afflictions you know um and, and on a psychological level we have disturbances and things that aren't comfortable um you know the whole shadow side of our beings that can't you know it's not to be simply removed and uh, in, in this kind of sterile act of purification, mm. it's um, we really have to immerse in it and, and undergo that dissolution. Because um, it's from that, you know, in, in the alchemical symbolism, that dissolution is really also uh, the beginning of a fermentation. There's something that is there's kind of like a dissolution that gives death, mm-hmm. and there's a dissolution that gives life. And I guess the fermentation is the a form of dissolution that gives life and but either way you have to go through this this phase of giving up your your sense of control over the um giving up your sense that your reality is integrated you have to start to disintegrate before that the, the fire of that ferment can unfold what's that Yazidi saying the uh the tears of satan extinguish the fires of hell yeah, nice, nice. And you know, on a similar similar note, I always I always come back to the line from Milton's Paradise Lost where where Lucifer says, um, that the mind is its own place and can make a heaven of hell or a hell of heaven. You know, that's that's I, I read that fairly early on in life and it's always stayed with me. You know, I always felt that we have this capacity to uh, to make our world heaven or hell or samsara or nirvana, like that's you know, we, that lies with within our own soul or mind. And I would take um, mind in its probably its gnostic and, and um, Platonic sense rather than its modern sense. It's funny you say that because you know if you look if you read the Book of Enoch closely the the angels are not cast in they're they're cast into areas of heaven (laughs) like the punishment area the fiery areas are in heaven and it it reminds me of like uh i forget what sufi talked about this but you know those same to somebody who has been unrighteous the fires of the the fire appears as fires of hell but to someone who has um, abides in the love of God, uh, 
which you know in a mystical sense of course that's just, that's the fire of god's love and the fire of the holy spirit which is warming them and which which they're abiding within like the seraphim and it's the same fire yeah that's that's a beautiful idea that the idea yeah that we we it's like the, this is divine fire burning away our mortal parts and we can experience that as hell if we're clinging on to what is mortal but we experience it as heaven if we we abandon the mortal and uh open ourselves to that immortal nature yeah and it, it, call, it calls back to how we are perceiving uh, things if we are perceiving things in a dualistic nature or a non-dualistic nature it it changes the mm. whole game um we do probably have to wrap up here soon and we've I think we've gotten into some pretty deep waters here with our conversation so thank you Aaron um I do want I did want to get your thoughts on this maybe to to close it out unless Janice has something to add um there is a statement a fairly famous alchemical statement from uh, allegedly from Ostanes or Ostanes to Democritus um nature delights in nature nature overcomes nature nature rules nature I was wondering if you can give your your thoughts on that. Mm, um, it's that is kind of a yeah. It's one of the core alchemical formula in the Greek or Egyptian world. That you know, to, to me, that saying is about because um, it's it's part of the the, the formula associated with the Ouroboros, the tail biting serpent. So it's about a unitary nature that also has a double nature within it. So this, this, so this idea that one nature acts upon itself or separates itself into two, two parts. You could call it heaven and earth, or you could call it um, yin and yang. And then one of those parts is active and acts upon the other part, which is more well, the recipient of the action. And together, that is the whole uh, genesis uh, and dynamic of the alchemical process. And it, it, you know, I would relate that back to exactly what we said before about salt and mercury and salt, and the Platonic kind of metaphysics underpinning that. Nicely put, thank you. Yeah, no problem. Um, it's I'm not sure if you can hear. It's actually raining really heavily here. Oh, uh, I do hear something. <laughs> It's just been hit with like a an electrical storm and like torrential rain. So oh wow! Just just hoping my connection holds up. I I can hear you okay. Um, I'm not sure how it's going to come across, but I think we're okay. Okay. Yeah, Janice. Um, anything to add before we wrap up? No, just that I wish we could hang out in person. Uh, this has been such an awesome conversation, and I know I for one am uh, feel privileged to have gotten the opportunity to discuss such important and meaningful uh, topics with you, Aaron. And I feel gratified by this uh, discussion. And I wanted to thank you for uh, sharing your time with us, which we know is valuable. Thank you. It's, it's been a pleasure. And yeah, I, hope, I hope too that I think we would have fun if we had So we should try and do that sometime. Yeah, that would be awesome. For both of us, Aaron, I just want to say thank you again. We appreciate your time, as Janice had said. Um, anything you you are working on now that you'd like to kind of let the audience know about? I know that you had mentioned Alchemical Traditions is coming out. Um, 
its, it's uh, second run, which is really exciting. So can you talk about that and maybe whatever else you have going on? That's, yeah, that's the main thing I'm working on now. So it's a revised and expanded edition, which is it's already a, quite a beast to begin with. The original edition is maybe 700 pages. So this one's going to, to be bigger and better. It's a, it's, it's, it's a pretty much a survey of the world's alchemical traditions, east and west. From, from the ancient world to the modern world. So it's quite an ambitious book. And, um, of course, I was it's a, it's a compilation of articles by different researchers. Uh, I, I wrote a bunch of chapters for it, but I also got other people on board, specialists, you know, like David Gordon White to write on Hindu tantric alchemy and Kim Lai to write on Tibetan alchemy and other people to write on different areas of, of their specialty. So it's very wide ranging, but also very deep and dense. And I'm uh, looking forward to having that out again, because it's been out of print for a couple of years. Um, the other book I'm working on is a really interesting hermetic text from the 17th century called the reign of Saturn transformed into an age of gold. Hmm. And that was translated from the Latin by a good friend and colleague of mine, Michael Putman, who's probably the best Latinist that I know. Um, so we got him. So basically it'll be similar to, a little bit similar to the, uh, the Brazilian aphorisms in the sense that there'll be a dual language text, Latin and English, with some commentary and introduction. But um, in this case, the core text is is much more substantial. It's, it's probably a couple of hundred pages of material. And, um, yeah, that's, that's a really solid hermetic text. My, my colleague, Mirko Minucci, has an uncanny habit of, of selecting genuinely unique gems of hermetic wisdom, uh, texts that haven't been translated before, no one knows about them, um, and, he, and, he, and he he pulls them out of the woodwork and gives them to me, and then we work on them and, and translate them. And, and um, yeah, they're, they're really yeah. These are texts that more or less no one in the English speaking world, at least, has, has seen before. So I'm, I'm quite excited to bring forth works like that. Very cool. And I, I really loved the uh, Basilian aphorisms. That's a, a really cool little book. Yeah, it's fantastic. It's really good. Uh, I think that people might want to pay attention to this book that you're bringing out because, again, another synchronicity among many in this conversation. I was just thinking about how perhaps we may be entering into a sort of the positive side of the phase that we're entering astrologically may be some kind of golden age in some ways, because, you know, Saturn is, Saturn is going to be in Saturn ruled signs for quite some time. Uh, Capricorn and Aquarius. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so your text is very well timed given that, and perhaps it's not an accident. Yeah, I, I do take astrological factors into consideration when putting things out. Um, 
Yeah, we're, 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 def- we're definitely contending with Saturn at the moment uh, and also for the next probably three years. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I like the idea of bringing this book out while Saturn is in his domicile. And um, also the idea, you know, in, implied in the title that that lead is kind of in inverted gold. Mm. And that, yeah, you can transform this this Iron Age or this Kali Yuga into a, a Golden Age. And, and, and again, in, in this same sort of non-dualistic sense that we've been talking about today. Nice. And you guys also, Rubito put out... Um, a book recently, The Path to the New Hermopolis, which looks really cool. Yeah, that's a nice little um, survey introduction to the hermetic tradition, actually, but from taken from the starting point of the city Hermopolis, which is the city of Hermes. And um, it's written by Dr. Mervat Nasser, who has actually created a, um, a center in Hermopolis, which is based upon the ideals that came out of Hermopolis and, um, you know, emerged in history as the Hermetic tradition. So, yeah, um, that's a nice little nugget as well. It's probably not as, you know, it's probably more introductory than than um, you guys might be generally interested in, but it's a nice little survey. And there was just still some things that I learned that I didn't know about um, Hermopolis and the Hermetic tradition from this book. She's actually doing a, a book signing uh, in Cairo next weekend. Um, and I'm quite, I don't know, I'm quite chuffed about that, the fact that it's going to be kind of released or at least uh, have a signing event in in the very land that the hermetic tradition emerged from. Given Hermes's or Thoth's Jihati's influence, I can't help but feel that there is meaning in that. And I tend to see the Hermopolitan uh, brother and sisterhood as something sort of similar to the true and invisible Rosicrucian uh, brotherhood, which is there may have been historical manifestations of it, but the true uh, association is in Elo Tempore. And so mm. you have this timeless Hermopolis out of Sentin, sort of like a Egyptian New Jerusalem, which is omnipresent, like you were talking about as a manifestation of the Ogdoad. And I think that this book may be a significant uh, manifestation of that aeon. Yeah, she's definitely bringing it it back. Um, and one thing I, it struck me about Hermopolis was that it's, it's actually in Middle Egypt. We, we, we often hear about Upper and Lower Egypt, and it's got its respective, you know, each of those regions have their respective centers. But Hermopolis being in Middle Egypt strikes me as, you know, quintessentially mercurial. You know, it's straddling totally. that boundary between the two polarities, uh, you know, which is exactly what Hermes or Mercury always does in, in most of his symbolism. It's so appropriate to conclude our conversation with that idea.
<laughs> yeah. Very cool. Well, Aaron, uh, thank you so much. This has been really awesome. We really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. It's, it's been a pleasure. Right. Yeah, likewise. You have truly enriched us. Thank you. All right. Thank you, Aaron. That was an awesome conversation, and we both feel really enriched from the exchange. Yeah, absolutely. It was it was a profound episode. It kind of turned into a contemplative meditation. I feel gratified by the interaction and immensely grateful to Aaron for agreeing to appear on the podcast to have a serious discussion about esoteric concepts that are deeper than the standard fair. It was enriching. Hope everyone enjoyed it. Um, we're going to keep the banter to a minimum on this one. You can check out what Aaron does on AaronCheek.com. He is also the publisher of Rubedo Press, um, one of the highest quality esoteric publishing houses out there. The content is just excellent. And instead of getting beautifully bound fluff, you're getting affordably priced yet profound and uh, well composed and laid out as well material it's just it's it's all around worth it especially for people who are interested in uh, genuine alchemy and um, late antique esotericism yep I would highly recommend the Basilian aphorisms if you're going to start somewhere it's a nice little book not as well known as other um, works that you might be familiar with and some great commentary added in there to kind of explain the depth of these aphorisms. Aaron's got another book out, The Leaf of Immortality, which is uh, more of a personal journey, which is profound. And it's interesting to kind of uh, be able to get inside his, his practice a little bit with that book. And of course, Alchemical Traditions, which is just a monster of a book. It's a huge tomb and it's out of print now, but he is, as of as of now, he's there you can pre-order the second edition and we are in uh september of 2019 and so that's available pre-order right now and so uh, alchemical traditions i would highly recommend it um it's just uh really uh, a profound work and lots of great contributions from some real great minds so check it out and check out all his offerings because there's a lot more than what we had mentioned and don't forget um we interviewed an author published by Aaron Sharon, Shannon Grimes, who really put out an exemplary treatise on Zosimus of Panopolis. And that's a perfect example of the high level of refinement and quality that Rubedo produces. We're not being paid to say this. We gain you know, we're not we're not we're not gaining anything from saying these things. We mean what we're saying. Um, we go through a lot, we look through a lot, we examine a lot, and um, we're trying to present the our audience with something that is of a certain dimension and degree of quality. So with that, I'm gonna I'm gonna sign off here and thank everyone for listening today. Yep, thank you everyone. You can check us out on Facebook, YouTube. And find us wherever you find uh, podcasts. All right. And that is a wrap for this episode. <laughs>